Let's go to the Lord before we go to the Word. This is our story in which we stand. This is the old story in which there is life. My sound arrogant, Lord, that we have one message that we have that can give life and everything else will condemn you to hell. But this is truth. This is the story. This is the story that our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ, you have come. You have come. You have given us a way back to God because we could not have found that way on our own. We praise you for this amazing gospel, for this amazing story. And we praise you, Lord, that we know this story. We praise you that you have taken us out of this world. You have opened our eyes and you have given us eyes to see this truth, Lord, not because we're smarter, not because we're brighter, not because of anything in us, but it is your grace. Grace undeserved, because grace is undeserved. We want to give you all praise and want to give you all the glory for that. And Lord, this is the message that we want to cherish. This is the message that we want to proclaim. This is the message that we want to extol, because this is the only message that saves. I pray right now that as we go to your word and we see this clearly in your word, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be humbled that we have been shown this grace. And I pray, Lord, that we would feel pity for the people who are lost in this world or people who believe a different message, thinking that there is some other way. I pray that you would use us to bring this message of the gospel to them and through it you would bring them to yourself. I ask that you would be exalted through the preaching of your word now, and that you would take these words and bring them to the hearts of the listeners as only you can. I pray for any here who are unconverted. I pray, Lord, that your word would work powerfully so that perhaps even today, Lord, somebody might come from darkness to light and receive the forgiveness of sins. I ask that you would be exalted through the preaching of your word for your glory. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Galatians chapter 1. And as I said today, the message of our sermon is the danger of a false gospel. Catherine Jeffers Scorey was a so-called presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church of the USA from 2006 to 2015. Now I say she was a so-called bishop because there has never been, nor will there ever be a female bishop, but that's besides the point. She was asked in one of the interviews the following question. Is belief in Jesus the only way to get to heaven? And this was her reply. We who practice the Christian tradition understand him to be our vehicle to the divine. But for us to assume that God could not act in other ways is, I think, to put God in an awfully small box. Now she's not the only one who would say such a thing being professing Christian, I was reminded of a famous clip of Joel Osteen when he appeared on Larry King Life. And to my knowledge, he never recanted this position. And they had the following exchange. Larry said, so then a Jew is not going to heaven. Joel, no, no, no. Here's my thing, Larry. I can't judge somebody's heart. You know, you know I, I don't know. Only God can look at somebody's heart, so I don't know. I mean, to me, it's not my business to say, you know, this one is and this one isn't. I just say, here's what the Bible teaches, and I'm going to put my faith in, you know, in Christ. And I just think it's wrong that we go around saying, you're not going, you're not going, and you're not going, because it's not exactly my way. I'm not going to be God. 
Larry, but you still believe your way. Oh yeah, I believe my way. I believe my way with all my heart. But someone who doesn't share your view is wrong, aren't they? Well, I don't think I look at it like that. I would present my way, but I'm just going to let God be the judge of that. I don't know. I don't know. So you, you make no judgment on anyone. No, no. Well, how about atheists? No, no. I just, I just you know what? I'm going to let somebody, I'm going to let God be the judge of who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. And I just, again, you know, I present the truth. I say it every week. I believe it is relationship with Jesus. But you know what? I don't know. I'm not going to go around telling everybody else that if they don't believe, that's not going to be my job. That's their choice. God's got to look down at your own heart, and only God knows that. I don't know. Well, you know, I want to take you today to somebody who knows. And guess what? You could know, and I could know. You see, when it comes to Christianity, true biblical Christianity, it makes claims that are not acceptable to the culture today. I mean, this is not just a modern phenomenon in the 21st century. But this has been like that from the very beginning. I mean, think about it. In the first century, Christians were accused of being atheists because they denied all the Roman gods and they refused to worship emperor. I mean, Jesus Christ, who founded Christianity, right? Christianity. I mean, he made some claims that would not fly today. For example, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Notice he did not say, I am a way, a truth, or a lie. I mean, if you just, just change the article, it would make perfect sense. Great, Jesus is a way, a truth, or a life. But that's not what he said. I mean, when Peter preached his sermon in Acts chapter 4, he did not mince words. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's pretty clear. That's pretty straightforward. And in our text here, Paul does not beat around the bush also, but he goes straight down in two verses or three verses or five verses into the book. He's calling down curses on anyone who does not preach this message. You know, Paul's aim, as we said many times already, in writing this book is to defend the gospel of grace. That's why the title of our series here is Guarding the Gospel of Grace. Now, we, we looked at first five verses last time, and we saw where Paul introduces himself, and then he introduces the message that he's going to defend in the next six chapters. We mentioned here that the tone of this letter is very abrupt. It's, it's very different when you compare it to other letters that Paul wrote. I mean, apparently, as you read this introduction here, we're only in verse 6 of this book. Apparently, Paul was not aware of a technique called sandwich criticism. You know, they say when you criticize somebody or you have something to bring up to them, you first come to them and you start by communicating something good, something nice that they would agree with, right? And then you give your criticism and then you follow up with some positive affirmation. I mean, apparently Paul did not know this technique because he says hello and then he goes straight to curses. Really? That's exactly what he does here. And he's so worked up because of what is at stake. And what is at stake? The glory of God and the salvation of his readers. 
Now, our verses are 6 through 10 for this afternoon. And here is my main point, succinctly put. This is what Paul is saying in these verses. Hold on to grace or go to hell. Now, this is not just a rhetorical flourish here because you will see that by the time we're done going through these verses, that is exactly what Paul says in this verse. Now, I told you that Paul doesn't beat around the bush. And this is not a very popular message to preach. And that's one of the blessings of preaching verse by verse. Because if you want to accumulate a crowd and if you want people to like you, you'll probably avoid this text. But when you're preaching verse by verse, you just got to take what's next. Now, I'll defend this proposition under three headings. First, we will look at the exclusive nature of the pure gospel. The exclusive nature of the pure gospel in verses 6 and 7. Second, in verses 8 and 9, we will examine the extreme danger of a false gospel. And then finally, we'll conclude in verse 10 with the exalted focus of the gospel preacher. Now, join with me as I read verses 6 through 10. Paul writes this, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Let's begin with the exclusive nature of the pure gospel. Paul begins in verse 6 and he says, I am amazed. I am amazed. Now these words, they explain the reason for the tone of this letter and for the change in the introduction as we have here. Now several times in this book, Paul describes his state as he's writing this book. In this case here, he says here, I am amazed. I'm astonished. I marvel. I'm astounded. I'm surprised. In in chapter 4, verse 19, listen to how he describes himself. He says, My children, with whom I am again in labor, until Christ is formed in you. I mean, those of you who have been in labor or who have seen your wives in labor, you know that's not a picture of peace and tranquility, right? He says, with whom I am again in labor. And he further acts in chapter 4, verse 20. He says, I am perplexed about you. I am at a loss. I don't even know where to go. What is going on? Now, what was it that caused Paul to be in the state? Look at verse 6. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. You remember when we did the introduction to the book, we laid out the timeline when this book was written, and we said that this book is written very early, probably in 48 A.D., Two years prior to that, Paul goes on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. He preaches and he establishes at least these four churches to whom this book is written. Now, so these churches are less than two years old. I mean, can you imagine this church is less than two years old? Imagine if Paul started this church in January of 2022. And by now, we are preaching a different gospel and we're 
promoting that. I mean, how would you feel? Really? Last year I was there. Last year I preached you. Last year you guys believed this, and now all of a sudden you are so quickly deserting him. Notice this was not a slow drift. No, this was radical change. It was so quick because there was not enough time for a slow drift. Now, in some sense, it is surprising that it happened so quick. On the other hand, it shouldn't be that surprising because this happens. I mean, think about the golden calf incident. I mean, God delivers the entire nation with so many miracles and so many wonders and signs, brings them into the wilderness. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days, and they're like, man, let's just worship somebody else. So quickly. And Paul says, you are so quickly deserting him. Notice what they were doing. They were deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ. Now, we like grammar around here, and if you look at this word, deserting, it's a present middle indicative. They themselves were in the process at this moment of deserting him who called them by his grace. To desert means to bring to another place. It was used, this word was used for military desertion. When you cross to the other side, when you're a turncoat, metaphorically, he's saying you are changing your allegiance from one side to another. Notice he's saying here, Galatians, you are in the process of becoming spiritual traitors. You are turning on the message that I have preached to you. Now remember, these are pagans who got converted less than two years ago. I mean, they were worshiping their gods, they were going to their temples, and Paul comes and he preaches their message and they believe. And then it just so happens that when you just believe, when you just hear the message, we've talked about this many times before, that people who just get saved, especially out of pagan lifestyle, who did not grow up in the Western country where they heard at least some truth, when they read the Bible, they're weak and they're immature. And so these false teachers easily came in, preached a different message to them, and they're like, man, that, sounds also, that also sounds good. It's like Paul was talking about in Ephesians, right? We would no longer be children tossed here and there. And that's what happened here. These churches were immature. These believers were immature. These false teachers infiltrated these churches, preached a different message, and they believed. Or they were in the process of believing. You see, great commission does not stop with preaching the gospel, right? He says, you go, you preach the gospel, you baptize those who believe, and then you do what? You teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's why they appointed elders in those churches, so that those elders would teach them the truth. Why do we spend so much time in the Word here? Why do we preach for most of the service? Why do we have all the Bible studies? Why? Because we need to know the truth so that when someone comes and preaches a false doctrine, you'll be like, I know that's false. Why? Because you are so grounded in the truth. These people were not. And even though, think about it, Paul started these churches. I mean, Paul preached to them. They got converted on his ministry. And here they were swayed by these false teachers. For us, we need to be so grounded in the truth so that we would not be swayed by anyone. You see, just because someone professes to believe in Christ, it does not mean they're not susceptible to error, as this clearly shows. Now notice what's interesting in the text, that they were not turning on a doctrine statement or some set of beliefs. Notice he says, you are quickly deserting him who called you. You see, to turn away from the gospel of grace is to turn away from God himself. It's not that you're turning away from some statement, some doctrinal statement that you signed. No, he says you are turning from God the Father. Notice how he, he qualifies him. From him, God the Father, who called you. It was God the Father who called you. It wasn't Paul who called you. It was God the Father who called you out of darkness into light. 
Now we make this distinction between a general call and effectual call. What is a general call? General call is what we do as men. We stand here every Sunday and we say, hey, if you did not believe in Christ, come and believe. That's a general call. That's like Paul standing on Mars Hill, and he says in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. As the preacher of the gospel, Paul says, repent and believe in Christ or you'll be judged. And you see, when we preach the gospel like that, there's a different response. Just like there was a different response to Paul's preaching. Acts 17.32 says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others said, we'll hear you again concerning this. But some men joined him and believed. When the general calls goes out, some will believe, some will mock. And some will say, this is very interesting, I'll come back to this. They walk away. Now, that's not what Paul was talking about here. We give a general call. But when he says, him who called you by his grace, we are talking about the effectual call of God. When the word of God goes out through the general call, God takes that word and effectually calls sinners to himself. For example, in the same book, in Acts chapter 16, Paul is in Philippi, and he's preaching in Acts chapter 16, verse 14, says, A woman, Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And listen to this. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That is effectual call. That's whom whom he foreknew, he predestined, he called. That is what we're talking about here. When God calls, the person always responds. And notice he says here, it was God who called you. And so if you're turning away from the gospel of grace, you are turning away from God who called you. And not only that, he called you by the grace of Christ. God did not have to call you. God did not owe salvation to you. It is his unmerited favor that he calls you. When you're dead in your sin, he does not have to bring you out to life. He does not have to call you. But notice he called you by the grace of Christ. This is the grace that we talked about last time in verse 3. It is the grace that Christ has shown to us by coming and sacrificing himself, paying the payment for our sins, so that on the basis of the sacrifice of Christ, God the Father can call you and says, you're going to be my, because my son has paid for you. It's interesting that these two words, grace and call, is used once again in the same chapter. Look at verse 15. He says, but when God who has set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. Paul says here, what happened to me, God called me through His grace. It's the same God who called you through His grace. And when you're turning on that gospel of grace, you are turning on God. In other words, to turn on the gospel of grace is to turn on God the Father and on Jesus Christ. And according to verse 3, God the Father and Jesus Christ, they are the source of grace. And when you turn on grace, you're cut off completely from God the Father, from grace, and from the gospel. Notice how serious this is. This is why Paul is so perplexed. He says, you are turning on God himself. Now, if they were turning away from the gospel of grace, what were they turning to? Look again at verse 6. You are turning, deserting him for a different gospel. 
Notice these false teachers, they did not come and infiltrated the church with horns and pitchforks. No. These guys came preaching a gospel, did they not? He says, you are turning to a different gospel. You see, the greatest threat to the church are not atheists, they're not cultists, and they're not hostile government officials. That's not the greatest threat to the church. The greatest threat to the church are people who come telling you they're wearing your uniform, but they're preaching a different gospel. That is exactly what happened here. Listen, these false teachers that infiltrated these churches, they affirmed many of the doctrines that Paul preached. They believed in Christ. They believed in his death. They believed in his burial. They believed in his resurrection. They professed all those doctrines. Otherwise, the church would not receive them. If they say, I wouldn't believe in Christ, nobody would accept them. But you know, notice they affirmed a lot of things that Paul affirmed. They affirmed a lot of things that Paul preached. But then they added something. They distorted the gospel of grace. And you see, people who are not mature, people who do not know the truth, people who are not solid, they're like unsuspecting. Like, but look, look at that. I mean, they affirm so many things that we affirm. They believe in so many things that we believe in. I mean, how bad can this be? And Paul says, yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Why? Because if you twist the gospel in any way, you don't have the Father, you don't have the Son, and you don't have the gospel. You can affirm many other things, but if you mess around with the gospel, you don't have the gospel. These guys preached grace, but it was the kind of grace that Catholics preach. Grace is not an unmerited favor that God bestows simply because of His love. But grace is just something that God infuses in you that enables you to perform acts of merit. Sure, I mean, yeah, Paul is watering down the gospel because, you know, I mean, it's hard to get circumcised when you're an adult. It's hard to keep the law. But you know what? If you have Christ, you can do those things. That's what they said. Listen to this quote from Martin Luther. He says, Christ is a fine master. This is how he summarizes their gospel. Christ is a fine master. He makes the beginning, but Moses must complete the structure. The devil's nature shows itself therein. If he cannot ruin people by wronging or persecuting them, he will do it by improving them. You can be better. I mean, Christ is great. Christ is awesome. Believe in Christ. Repent of your sins. But then you know what? You've got to keep the law. You've got to get circumcised. You've got to get to church. You've got to read the Bible. You don't do those things, sorry, you're going to hell. That's his message. And that's the message that they were promoting. Now, what does Paul think about this gospel? Notice he says, you're turning to a different gospel, verse 7 says, which is really not another. Now, this is interesting here because notice there are two words here. In verse 6, we have the word different. In verse 7, we have the word another, which is really not another. Now, while these words are sometimes used interchangeably, there is a distinction between them. The first word you know, heteros like heterosexual, you know that word, right? It's the one who's attracted to opposite sex. That's what he's talking about, hetero. And so he's saying these guys, they come in and they preach hetero gospel. But guess what? There is no such thing as hetero gospel. There is no such thing. And then he uses another word in verse 7. He says, which is really not another. That is a different word for another. It is another of the same kind, which is really not another. A use of this for example, in John 14, Jesus is telling his disciples that I'm going to leave and you're going to have another helper. In John 14, 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. You will have a helper who is just like me. 
And he's going to come and he's going to comfort you. Now what Paul is saying here, this is the point here. He says, the false teachers are not preaching the gospel. Why? Because there is no other gospel. There is only one gospel. That's what we just saying today, right? There is one gospel in which we stand. Listen, there are no different versions of the gospel. There are no different types of the gospel. There is one gospel. And listen, this is an astounding claim. This is an astounding claim that Paul makes here. Let me tell you something. There is only one gospel. And you could know, by the way, that there is only one gospel. Because there is only one gospel, there is one way. There is only one message that saves. Now, if you tinker with that... If you mess with it in any way, if you add anything to it, if you take away anything from it, you destroy it. There is only one gospel. How many drops of poison can you add to a cup of water and still claim it's safe? I mean, it's a very low number in the round, too. Notice Paul identifies the actions and motives of those who preach this gospel. He says, only there are some, in verse 6, who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now Paul does not identify them here by name or even as a group. He just simply says there are some. There's a group of them. You have a number of those false teachers. And what are they doing? He says they're disturbing you. Interesting word again. To disturb means to shake, means to agitate, means to stir up. Remember when Magi came from the east and they told Herod that there was a king born. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, says, When Herod heard this, he was troubled. That's the same word. He was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, what Paul is saying is that when these false teachers infiltrate the church and they start preaching a different message, they start preaching a different gospel, they are disturbing the church. They are shaking the foundation of the church. One commentator put it this way, you cannot touch the gospel and leave the church untouched because the church is created and lives by the gospel. Indeed, the church's greatest troublemakers now and then are not those outside who oppose, ridicule, and persecute it, but those inside who try to change the gospel. You see, if the church is built on the message of the gospel, the gospel of grace, and you come and you start messing with the gospel, you're messing with the foundation. And when you mess with the foundation of the building, pretty soon the whole building crumbles, right? That's what Paul is saying here. That's what they're doing. These false teachers, he says, they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Now, this is an amazing statement. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. You see, all of us, including myself, we have holes in our theology. Right? I mean, I said, and we've said this before, that I know there are blind spots and there are holes in my theology. I just don't know where they are. Because if I did, I would change them, right? Now, notice what these people are doing here. It's not that these people just accidentally preach something that is false. No, no, he says they want to distort the gospel of grace. They didn't misunderstand Paul. No, no, they understood exactly what Paul was saying. They understood his message perfectly. They understood that his message was, you can do nothing in order to earn your salvation. Your salvation is completely dependent on God. They understood that message perfectly, and they hated it. They hated it. They vehemently disagreed with his message. And as he says here, they tried to distort the gospel of Christ. I mean, to distort literally means to change. It means to reverse, to reverse the gospel of grace. Another way of looking at the book of Galatians is basically answering one question. 
what role do works play in salvation? What role do works, anything that you do, plays in your salvation? Now, we read Ephesians chapter 2 before service. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul lays out clearly how you got saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice, your works are not prerequisite for salvation. In other words, you don't do anything to be saved. You simply look to the one who did all the work. And that is the grace of Christ when God opens your eyes and gives you ability to behold Him. And He says, for by grace we have been saved through faith. Again, faith is not something that you generate. Philippians 1.29, for to you it has been granted to believe. Faith is something that God gives to you. And when He gives that grace to you to believe, you exercise your faith and you believe in Christ. That's not work. That's what God produces in you. But notice, it doesn't stop there. Because the same Paul says this in verse 10. For we are His worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that we should walk in them. So what is the order? The order is God gives you grace. God saves you. God redeems you. God grants you faith to believe the message. You believe that message. When you believe that message, you are saved. And then after that, God says, now that, now that I saved you, I saved you to work. Because he says we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The works that you perform, they are the result of being saved. They're not the basis for your salvation. You work because God has worked in you. You work out that which God has worked in. What were these false teachers doing? They were reversing the order. He says they want to distort the gospel of Christ. They were distorting it and they were saying, well, listen, if you want to get saved, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be purified, you have to do this, that, and the other. You got to get circumcised. You got to keep the law. And they were distorting the order. And Paul's saying, when you reverse the order, you destroy the gospel because it is no longer gospel because the gospel of works is no gospel. I mean, imagine someone comes to you and says, listen, I want to preach to you a very good news. I want to preach the gospel to you. Okay, what is the gospel? You know, God is holy, and God requires absolute perfection. And this God, He desires to have a relationship with you. And you know what? This God provided a way for you to be saved. And all you have to do is you just have to start perfect. And then He gave us a perfect law, which you perfectly have to obey. If you ever break it once, then you break the whole law. All you have to do is just keep the law perfectly, and you're going to go to heaven. Now, if somebody were to preach that message to you, what would you say? That's not the gospel. That is not a message of salvation. That is not good news. That's bad news. The bad news is because you start off as a sinner, and the bad news is that even known that now, that even as a Christian, you can't even keep the law. You can't even be perfectly obedient because you're going to continue to sin. That's not good news. That's not good message. So if you're preaching the gospel of works, if you're preaching a message that you need to do something in addition to believing in Christ and trusting in His work, you are preaching a false gospel. It's like running on the treadmill, works-based treadmill. You can get on it, and you can run, and you can run really long and really fast, but the moment you get off, you're still in the same spot. That's what this is. He says, you cannot work for it. You're reversing the order. Now, if you're with us on Thursday nights, 
we're working our way through this little religion called Catholicism. 1.2 billion people are caught up in it. And as you read this, this is exactly what Paul denounces here. This is exactly, Paul says, everything that these false teachers were teaching, they're teaching today. They're using the same terminology. They affirm many of the same things that we would affirm. But guess what? They distort the gospel of grace. Because in addition to the gospel, there are so many other things that you need to do. Oh, you got to go through the seven sacraments. Oh, you got to get a help from Mary. You got to go to the Mass. And all these other things that are in addition to simply trusting Christ. And Paul says this gospel is no gospel at all. They might not deny the things that we deny. They believe in God the Father. They believe in Jesus Christ. They believe in the Holy Spirit. They believe in death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But they just simply add to the gospel. They reverse the order. And when they reverse the order, they distort the gospel of grace. And that's why Paul is so upset here. He's like, what are you doing? You are messing with the gospel. You are messing with one message that can give you salvation. Listen, we're not all climbing the same mountain. We're just taking different trails. How people want to picture today. You know, Muslims are on the other side climbing. You know, these guys in the back, they're on the other side. And we're right here in Slok. Eventually, we'll all end up in the same place. No, we will all might be climbing the same mountain and all end up in hell. But there's only one trail where that God says, you cannot climb to me. But he comes down and he brings you up. And he says, now all you got to do is you got to accept this grace from me. Notice this is an exclusive message. It is, it's not like try this and if this doesn't work, try that. No, Paul is so upset because there is only one way for you to be saved. There is only one message that you can believe. The only path to God is to believe in the gospel of grace. Now that's the exclusive nature of the gospel. Let's consider secondly the danger of the false gospel. Now, in verses 8 and 9, Paul uses the strongest language possible to stress the danger of the false gospel. Now, he begins in verse 9 with a hypothetical. He says this, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. Verse 8. Now, notice Paul includes himself here. He says, but even if we, Paul and Barnabas, preached the message to these churches. They were the ones who established these churches. And he will further argue that the message that they have preached to those churches is the message that they received from God. And so now Paul says this, if for whatever reason I start preaching to you a different message, let me be accursed. This is Apostle Paul calling down curses upon himself, and he says, if I preach a different message, let me be accursed. MacArthur nails it here when he writes, the truth outranks anyone's credentials. And every teacher or a preacher must be evaluated on the basis of what he says, not on who he is. Notice it's not like, you know, we have class, of, or we have Pope, and if Pope says something, it's true. We have pastor, and he says something must be true. No. He says, Paul says, Paul says, even if I start preaching a different gospel, let me be accursed. Now, Paul demonstrated this even in this book. You remember in the very next chapter, Paul publicly rebukes Peter. I mean, Peter, the head of the apostles. I mean, Paul, maybe you should just consider, maybe like take him aside. No, he says, I publicly rebuked him. Why did he do it? Look at chapter 2, verse 14. 
He says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all. You see, truth is the highest authority. And it does not matter who is spitting out falsehood. Whoever it is, it does not matter what rank they have. No, he says he was not straightforward about the truth. Therefore, I rebuked him. Now, this implies that you can know the truth. You can know what is true. And there is a truth by which you can claim, you can, uh, by which you can assess the person who is making a claim and the claim that they're making. Notice there is some kind of standard here. Paul says, if I preach a different gospel, let me be accursed. But not only that, he says, and even if an angel from heaven. I mean, that's interesting. I mean, why would you want to include angels here? Besides this reference, there are two other references to angels in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, he states that angels were involved in delivering the law. Galatians 3.19 says, why the law then? It was added because of the transgressions haven't been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. In chapter 4, verse 14, Paul states that Galatians received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Now it's possible that these false teachers who were promoting the law were claiming that they were on the side of the angels. Right? The law was delivered by the angels. You can't just dismiss it. You can't just disregard it. It's also possible that some of them, like in the book of Colossians, claim that they received a revelation from an angel, and here they are proclaiming it. But notice what Paul says. There is a standard. There is a standard by which you assess every message, whether it comes from an apostle or it comes from an angel. He says, you receive that contrary to that what you have received from us or what we have preached to you. We have preached to you. Now Paul here does not specify exactly what it is that he preached to them, although he already gave us a glimpse into it in verses 3 and 4. What did Paul preach? Paul preached a message of grace. A message that grace and peace, they come only from God the Father because it was only Jesus Christ who paid on the cross for the sins of believers and now He imparts the grace to those who believe in Him. You can be free by simply trusting the message of Christ. Notice He says, anyone who preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. You know this word, anathema. You've heard this before. To pronounce anathema on someone is to take that person and to place them under a ban. Remember in the Old Testament, they're going in, they're conquering the city, and there are certain things that are placed under a ban, which means they're devoted to destruction. You do not touch them. You do not bring them in. They are devoted to destructions. And when we're talking about let them be accursed, it's not just he's just excommunicated or he's banned. No, that person is under the divine wrath and judgment of God. Net Bible translates this verse this way. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be condemned to hell. That is the end result of being accursed. Now think about this. Paul is speaking under the divine authority. He's writing this under inspiration. Because Paul himself, he can't condemn anyone to hell. I mean, you and I, we don't have that power. But here he's speaking for God and he says, let him be condemned. According to Paul, anyone who preaches false gospel is condemned. 
I mean, this language is warranted because of what false gospel does. Right? False gospel, number one, it robs God of His glory. We saw that last time because in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, To whom be the glory forevermore. Gospel of grace brings glory to God. And if you destroy that gospel, if you add any works to that gospel, then the person who performs those works ought to get at least a little bit of credit. And so you're robbing God of his glory. And Paul says this person deserves to be damned because you're robbing God of his glory. Not only that, false gospel condemns people to hell. False gospel is no gospel. You see, if you believe any other message other than the gospel of grace, as Paul says, you will end up in hell. If you believe that message, if you hold on to it your entire life, you might be very sincere. You might, might hold on to it very dearly. You might even work a lot. But you know what? When you open your eyes on the other side, you will, end, you will realize that all that was a farce and you will end up in hell. That's what false gospel does. It will condemn you to hell. Not only that, false gospel destroys the church. He says here in this text that they are disturbing the church. Christ loves his bride. Christ loves his church. And that's why he pronounces such a severe judgment on those who try to destroy the church. Again, if you just step back and zoom out from this text, and you just ponder for a moment the message that Paul is sending here, Paul is saying that there is one message. There is one gospel that cannot be altered or changed. Only one message. Even an apostle or an angel comes down and preaches this message, he is to be accursed. I mean, think of how many false religions there are today who claim that they have received a revelation from an angel and now they're following whatever that angel told them. I mean, call me crazy, but Maroney talking to Joseph Smith about golden plates sounds like exactly what Paul was talking about here. There is one message that was preached to Abraham, it was preached to Paul, it was preached to Galatians, it was preached to us. And if you believe some other message, you do not believe the gospel. I mean, but Paul, do you, do you have to be so harsh? I mean, don't you know that you're not going to win friends and influence people with this message? Now, it is as if he's trying to make sure that you get the seriousness of it. He doubles down in verse 9. He says, as we have said before. Apparently Paul warned these people when he was there. He warned these people of the danger of believing a false gospel. And he says, when we were with you, we were teaching you. We were preaching you. As we have said before. So I say again now. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed since the day I was with you or since the day I wrote verse 8. Nothing has changed. And notice, if verse 8 was hypothetical, then this one is actual. In verse 8, he says, even if we, or an angel from heaven, well, guess what? Paul is never going to preach false gospel, right? Or an angel from heaven definitely is not going to preach false gospel if he's from heaven. There might be another angel that appears from heaven might preach a different gospel. But an angel from heaven will never preach a different gospel because there is only one gospel. And so verse 8 is hypothetical. And now he's looking at actual reality on the ground. He says, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now he's talking about specific teachers in those churches who are at the present time preaching a false gospel to them and that they are in the process of accepting. And he says, you know what? You know the guy in your church, the John and whoever else is there. Let me tell you something. Go to hell. 
Let them be accursed. I mean, he's naming individuals here. He's looking at people. He's like, you know who these people are. They're preaching to you a message that is contrary to what I preach to you. Let them be accursed. Now, if you were sitting in one of those churches, right, and you received this letter, now you're facing a choice. You're facing the choice. You're either going to believe Paul and his message, or you're going to believe that guy who's sitting right next to you and preaching false message. Because you can't have both. you got to choose. You're going to follow Paul, or you're going to follow this false teacher. You see, if you believe the gospel of grace, you do not sit under and you don't hang out with people who preach the false gospel. You see, according to the gospel, according to the Bible, everyone who preaches false gospel, according to this text, is what? Accursed. Accursed. Damned. Now, there's, there are a lot of things that we can disagree about. Music style, lights, carpet color, clothing. A lot of stuff. But you know what? One thing we can disagree about is the gospel. This is one thing that you cannot compromise on. And anyone who is compromising on the gospel, you've given away the whole barn. And it doesn't matter what else you agree with. If you distort the gospel of grace, you're rejecting the only way of salvation. You see, false gospel condemns people to hell. Now, if in this case, when Paul is writing this to Galatians, there is a gospel that was preached. In the 21st century, there's a hundred different gospels. There's a hundred different ways that people say, you know what, just pull yourselves by the bootstrap. Just be good and do good like Joe Osteen, whatever works for you, right? Now, if you were to ask, well, how can I spot a false gospel? Well, I'm glad you asked. Simple rule. Any message that adds or subtracts from the perfect work of Christ is a false gospel. If repenting of your sins and trusting in Christ is not enough to be saved, then that is a false gospel. The pure message of the gospel is you simply believe on the one who has done all things. You throw yourself upon him and you're saved. Now after that, things change. And after that, you do things and you work things because God transforms you on the inside. But in order for you to be saved, you have to do absolutely nothing but repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And that is the work of God in your life. Anyone who adds anything to that message is preaching a false gospel. That's Paul's message. We've examined the nature of the pure gospel, and you can see how dangerous the false gospel is because it will condemn you to hell. Let's close with the exalted focus on the gospel preacher. Look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now, in a sense, this is a transitional verse because with this verse here, Paul will transition to the next section where he will defend his apostleship in the next two chapters. But the aim of this verse is to defend Paul's record because Paul is answering accusations that were leveled against him and he asks two rhetorical questions. You see, the accusation against Paul in something like this, you know, Paul is a man-pleaser. He just wants to please man. I mean, that's why he changes the message. He's making it easier for people to follow. It's hard to get circumcised, as I said, or keep the law. And so Paul says, you don't have to do any of that stuff. He's a man-pleaser. He's promoting himself to gather followers. 
And here's his response. He says, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? Did you guys read what I just wrote? Do you still think I'm a men pleaser? I mean, I just called curses down on anyone and everyone who does not preach the message that I preached. I just co-signed a whole lot of people to hell. You think I'm a men pleaser? I mean, if I was a man pleaser, I would say, I don't know. But he says, listen, I just said that if you do not believe my message, you are on your way to hell and you will be condemned. Anyone who says, you know, we're putting God in this small box called the gospel of grace, that's a man pleaser. That's a man pleaser because you're telling people that you are okay just as you are. My way works for me. Your way works for you. Paul says, no, this is a damning heresy. This is the gospel that will condemn you. If there is only one cure for the disease that you have, and I know that every other cure will kill you, and I still say, well, this works for me, but you can try that, no problem. It'll be evil. And Paul is saying, listen, I'm not a man pleaser because I'm willing to stand up and say things like I just said. You see, it takes no courage to tell everybody that you're good just as you are, and I'm good just as I am. But it takes a lot of courage and love to go to people and tell them that unless you believe the message that I preach to you, you will end up in hell. That takes courage. That is not the message that you want to promote if you want to have a lot of people following you. And notice how he closes. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. When he says, if I were still trying, it indicates that there was a time in his life when he was trying to please man. Remember, he was a Pharisee. And Jesus told Pharisees that you guys are men-pleasers. You stand in front of people, you parade in front of people, you do, why? Because you're men-pleasers. And Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, no, that was B.C., before Christ. Before Christ, I was a man-pleaser, but not anymore. Now, he says, I am a bond-servant of Christ. And notice, these are mutually exclusive He says, you cannot be a man-pleaser and servant of Christ. Not with the message that you got to go and preach. Because this message is not going to be popular. People will not like you, and it's going to be hard to preach that. And you have to make a choice. Either you're going to please God by being faithful to the message that He has given to you, or be a man-pleaser and tell everybody what they like to hear. Because people like to hear that they're good, and people like to hear that what they're doing is okay. And people like to hear that, yes, you are good, and you're going to go to heaven. They like to hear that. They don't like to hear that what you're doing will condemn you to hell. And Paul says, you have to make a choice. And here he says, I have made my choice. Before I was a man pleaser, but not anymore. I am a bond, so I'm a slave of Christ. That is who I am. Paul made his choice. And his choice was to please his master. There's a claim to authority here as well. Because Paul is saying here, I don't come to you in my own authority. I don't come to you with my own strength and my own power. No, no. I have a master. And this master has sent me to you with the message. And this message is that there is only one way for you to be saved. And you either believe that message or go to hell. And so if you're rejecting me, and if you're rejecting my message, you're not rejecting me and my message. You're rejecting the master who sent me. I am a slave of Christ. I received commission from him. And it is he who is telling you to believe this message or be condemned. So as we close, let me ask you, 
as we will do it again and again as we study this book, do you believe the gospel of grace? And notice again, I'm not asking you if you're subscribing to a set of beliefs or you sign on the dotted line some statement that someone gave you or some card that someone gave you. As Paul says here, have you come to him who called you by the grace of Christ? You see, believing the gospel is coming to the person. It is coming to the person of Christ and saying, if you don't save me, I'm dead. It is taking all of your eggs and putting them in one basket. It's not like, I'm going to try Jesus, but just in case that doesn't work, do seven sacraments. No. So have you come to this gospel of grace? You see, it is the gospel of grace because you don't deserve to be saved, and neither do I. But that's why it is the gospel of grace that God gives to us what we don't deserve. Christ comes and he flung the doors of heaven open and said, just come. Come as you are. Now this is a great message because you don't have to do anything. You have to believe. You have to humble yourself. Because if you're not humble enough to say, I can't do anything to enter that door, then you're not going to enter. Because if you still think that you have all these baggages that you can bring in, but what about all my accomplishments and what about all my achievements? No, he says, you leave all that at the door. You come and trust in me. And for those that come, he says, I will redeem you. Maybe somebody here, as was in the case here, believed some other gospel or a so-called gospel. There is no other gospel. There is only one gospel and everything else is not good news. It's bad news. Now, this passage might seem harsh and unloving, but you know what? This is the most loving thing you can tell to somebody who's in danger of going to hell. This is the most loving thing you can say to that person is that what you're doing and what you're believing will eventually damn you. And so turn from that. Turn to Christ because He's offering you a way of salvation. Now, for us who have embraced this gospel of grace, I mean, this is good news. This is truly a good news that we are accepted because of the work of Christ. So you rejoice in the gospel. You hold on to the gospel. And you go out and you preach this gospel unashamedly. Even though you're not going to be popular and not, people are not going to flock to you. Because like, I love this message so much. No, you will only love this message when your eyes are open and you recognize that this is a good gospel that God saves me without me doing anything. That's the gospel that Paul defends. And that's why Paul has to go to this length and has to condemn everyone because if anyone believes some other so-called gospel, they will be damned. God's glory, God will be robbed of His glory and the church will be shaken. That's why we preach this. That's why we defend this. So let's celebrate and sing about it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we have this gospel. Thank you, Lord, that your word is clear and that we have the standard of truth by which we can assess every message and every person. I pray that by your grace you would allow us to hold on to this gospel and never turn on it. I pray that you would help one another to encourage one another to hold on to this truth and to proclaim it faithfully so that you would be exalted. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, this afternoon, for your glory. Amen.